Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in October of 2021. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who had the pleasure of joining our guest, Floyd Marinescu. Mr. Marinescu graduated from the University of Waterloo with a degree in mathematics and computer science. Floyd is a founder and CEO of C4 Media, InfoQ, and UBI Works. C4 Media and InfoQ is a news organization that spreads information about computer software and software as a service. UBI Works is an organization Mr. Marinescu created in order to raise awareness of the benefits of UBI and its socioeconomic benefits. When he is not working towards either of these endeavors, he is an angel investor for several startups that look to make a social impact. When listening to our guest, I find it immensely helpful to consider his intellectual journey and how he arrived at his conclusions. I find it very formative in understanding our guest's logic. Together, we discuss the benefits of having common and public goods, how rent-seeking negatively impacts well-being, and the pros and cons of incremental versus systemic change. We wanted to wish all of our listeners in America a happy 4th of July. We here at the Henry George School hope you got to enjoy the holiday and spend some time with your loved ones. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Well, Floyd, welcome to Smart Talk. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this is a great opportunity for us to have a conversation. I, uh, in exploring your um, your history and your work, I'm first amazed at your entre- entrepreneurial uh, ability and what you've been able to put together. I thought you might ask. I might ask you to take a few minutes at least to discuss a little bit about your background that that. Uh, they might not be able to find elsewhere online. You know, what has motivated you to become the person you are? Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Um, yeah, well, when I was in, uh, I went to University for Computer Science and somehow got into community, uh, community development. I was basically, I created a news website uh, for software engineers uh, that later was, was sold and then created another one and called InfoQ, which is around today. And uh, still own that business and a conference series called QCon. And uh, my passion was always uh, change and innovation, helping us innovate, helping us grow faster. Uh, human progress through technology is the purpose of the company, C4 Media, that runs InfoQ and QCon. And um, it was really a wonderful experience because what made that successful was creating communities of experts who would curate speakers and curate content uh, training. I trained uh, probably over 100 software engineers how to write journalistic style news even though I was told it's impossible by journalists to do that. Uh, but, you know, engineers want to hear from each other. They, they want to hear from credible sources. So I've always been kind of a systems thinker and trying to build community to, um, to serve, serve itself through, through our news and, and our events. And later on, got into angel investing 
and some VC stuff. And somehow as, you know, as my knowledge would grow, uh, sort of an amateur economist just came to become more aware and very concerned with how the world is going. Initially started in from a purely technology lens, understanding and learning about the impacts of technology on jobs, which is, is uh, often not, not what people think. And, uh, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, Andrew Yang was a huge inspiration. Uh, that's initially what got me into uh, this whole uh, basic income movement, uh, seeing the urgency of it, but not just the urgency for what's to come, the urgency of what has already transpired. If you look at the, um, uh, at the slowing of wage growth, the impacts of automation, uh, including on my own family, where my father and uncle were in, in the manufacturing, auto manufacturing sector, and then lost their careers in the early 2000s when China became uh, a main competitor. Most people blame China, but in fact, the industry here responded with a tremendous amount of automation to stay competitive. And that automation is responsible for four times more job loss than, than trade. Um, and that's, that's been shown by many economists. So that's what really was the impetus for me to get into all this. There's, there's a good deal of uh, history involved in the movement to co collect the revenue that's generated by increases in land values. I mean, Henry George was not the first. In fact, the, the idea of looking at the, at the earth as a commons and the rent of land as a source of public revenue, uh, as you may know, goes back even before Adam Smith. There are political economists who are looking at this issue and, and concluding that the value of the, of the earth, of the, of the land belongs to everyone. And then the question is, well, how do we make that happen and how do we do it in an equitable way? And so the universal basic income idea has arisen as one way to get there. And those of us who have studied the works of Henry George believe that the funding for the universal basic income should come from the rent of land and other sources of rent in it that economists would identify. I, I just wonder, have you done much reading uh, on economics on this particular issue? And have you, have you read any of Henry George's works? Yeah, so this... Uh, um... You're inviting me to explain a, a bit of a, a journey. You know, initially it was just right. basic income, technology, the funding source. I had no idea about rents. Um, I had a strong intuition that there should be some way that humanity's collective progress should be represented in a way where we can all benefit beyond the story we're told that we only benefit through jobs and, and lower, lower product goods, lower price goods, which neither of which are 100% are true. There must be some other means to express what is our progress that if we if we owned it and, and benefit from it, we'd all be better off. And I never knew what it was. And as I and I started my basic income advocacy from a purely this is urgent, you know, by any means necessary lens. And as I spent a lot of time studying funding sources, studying the works of um, Professor Guy Standing, who is probably the foremost world expert on basic income, uh, his co-founder of the Basic Income Earth Network named Carl Weiterquist, including all the way to Sam Altman, the founder of Y, president of Y Combinator, Silicon Valley startup incubator. And I noticed something strange in common all these three people had. They all advocated a land value tax as part of the funding mix. And, and I'm like, well, why? What's this about? It, it just was really new to me. So about a year and a half ago, I did read Progress and Poverty and started down this path, understanding the dynamics of land, the impacts it has on, on increasing poverty, on a number of the, the trends, the economic indicator trends, like capital versus labor ratio and all these things that was concerning me to, to, to provide a more holistic picture. And, and now I, I, I'm still in that learning journey. 
So I, I put it out there to the readers. If you're an economist who's interested in technology and land, particularly if you're in Canada and you want to help with research around rents, please reach out. We're trying to, to price and create funding proposals using rents and we could use all the help we can get. <laughs> I suspect that there will be some viewers of Smart Talk who might be in contact with you. One person that I would hope eventually to put you together with was uh, a leader of the uh, Toronto Green Party named Frank DeYoung. Is his name at all familiar with you? Yes. Yeah. So we worked with Frank and we produced a funding option a year, a year ago. And, um, but we're going deeper now on, um, and yes, I am in touch with Frank, Great. Um, Carl Fitzgerald's from Australia and uh, Gary Flamenhoft. Um, but need, need more Canadian researchers who can crunch the numbers. <laughs> well, you're, um, you've, you've reached out, you're in touch with the right people, but people <laughs> that I would strongly recommend that anyone interested in public collection of rents talk to in Canada. Yeah. And <clears throat> so, so yeah, just to finish that thought, I, I guess where I've come to now is that this, this concept of our technological inheritance, as I spoke of in a TEDx talk a while ago, and I understand that humanity's technological inheritance is economic rents. And, and I'm trying to find ways to express that, create narrative around it, uh, make it easy to understand. And of course, the most important of all that would be land rents. Now, for viewers from the basic income background, it doesn't mean that we're not about basic income by all means, any means urgently we are. It's, I can see a need for a blended model where you have what's called a basic income guarantee built on top of, of dividends from rents and land and such that, that are the collective ownership of all. Well, one of the challenges that reformers have is that we have an existing system. And the, the question is, do you move toward a better system incremental, incrementally or you, do you try to scrap the existing structure and replace it. And those of us who advocate Henry George's uh, approach believe that this can be done peacefully and incrementally over time with minimal disruption to the economy. And in fact, done in a way that will cause the uh, economy to experience sustained growth without harming the environment and addressing many of the distribution problems that exist today. Politically, it's just been very difficult for, for proponents to find a constituency to make it happen in the political arena. So, you know, from what I listened to you talk about, that's one of your priorities is to generate public support and interest so that there's enough public pressure to get the politicians interested enough to advance legislation. Is that a fair assessment? That's right. So the nonprofit I started a couple of years ago, it's called UBI Works. It focuses in Canada. Uh, and we're starting from a, a bottom-up, people-powered, uh, media-centric view. So our, our goal is to build a groundswell of people support to make it impossible to not, to not run on an election and win. So right now, we're, you know, we're the largest social media channels. We have 60,000 email lists. On, and uh, we talk about basic income from an anti-poverty lens. And uh, so we did, I have spoken to MPs, we have funded research that shows that basic income would grow the economy and uh, a number of things, uh, how we can pay for it various ways. But the discussion in Canada is primarily taking place from an anti-poverty lens. And as I learn more about land and its impact, I've come to feel that it's actually a different conversation, that if, if land reform uh, would be merited perhaps on, on its own merits, and it's not necessarily related to an anti-poverty discussion, I've been thinking actually that it, it might have more uh, success in the coming decade because of rising housing prices, so which affects the middle class. And that's something I'd love to see more. Maybe viewers can send me articles. Where, where have there been articles that link um, 
uh, collecting land rents to to falling or, or housing prices because I haven't seen anything yet other than the, the great narratives. <laughs> well, there's a good deal of writing on the subject, and it's and it's one of the challenges that this idea of moving to land value taxation has because the middle class in the United States, and I was I'm guessing the same is true of the can, can, uh, Canadians, that much of the net worth that people have is the equity in their residential property. And because housing units are depreciating assets over time, the value, the net worth they have in their house falls, but it increases in the land because of the way the land market operates. So you're asking people who've had a very difficult time saving enough for retirement uh, to potentially give up the equity in the rising land prices that they've experienced. And somehow that has to be reconciled uh, politically and people have to be taken care of. I, my, my feeling on this is it has to be done over time. So most proponents of moving to a land-based property tax will advocate that it be done over say a 10 year period. Um, and that would give markets time to adjust even though you know, the theoretical observation is that the higher the rent collected by the public, the lower land prices will become. So theoretically, land prices could fall to zero. I'm sure uh, Frank DeYoung and uh, Carl Fitzgerald have, have talked about that as a long-term potential outcome that we have to deal with. So there've been all sorts of proposals for circuit breakers, uh, say a certain amount of land equity would be um, exempt from land rent taxation in all ways so that we don't destroy the middle class while we're trying to make the system more equitable for their children, for example. Um, mm. This may be something that you're familiar with, but in many neighborhoods in the middle class cities of the United States, the adult children of, of homeowners can't live anywhere close by because property costs are too high. So we get urban sprawl as a result of it. And, and people are forced to commute longer and longer distances. So I think well, this is where, yeah, sorry, but this is where Thomas Paine's ideas could save the day and, and where the pure George's view uh, maybe hasn't worked, which is if people are receiving dividends, then you can make a compelling case that you're trading land equity for cash equity and uh, the value of say $500 a month, or let's say it's a, in Canada, by our calculations, uh, a full land rent, five and a half percent would, would generate $1,000 a month for all adults. $1,000 a month if you're 18 is like being given $1.3 million of equity in, in, in uh, today's interest rates. Uh, I just made that up, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. And if, if you're 60, maybe it's as if you got three or 400,000 equity. That's not a bad trade if you consider the cash value of that annuity of $1,000 a month, like forever. Uh, so there, I think there are arguments there that could be made um, that link uh, this type of land reform uh, to uh, middle-class empowerment in a, in, a, in a pure cash manner that is hard to ignore. I, I agree with you. There, there is one concern that I have voiced on that specific uh, you know, uh, approach, and that is... When in economics, you increase the demand side of a market without increasing the supply side, you run into price increases. And so it's very likely that giving every household $1,000 a month 
uh, will particularly adversely affect renters, that landlords will be in a position to raise their, their rents uh, for apartments. And it also could uh, translate into higher property prices generally. So I, my, my view is that we, in proposing the UBI, we need to also stress with, with communities that they have to address the supply of affordable housing and that, that much more revenue needs to be allocated to construct affordable housing than is being allocated today by communities and, and by higher levels of government. And that would address, I think, the main, my main concern about just giving people you know, X amount of dollars a month as, a, as an additional income, that the market uh, for land could, could take away uh, a good deal of that benefit. For at least for well, many people. Yeah, I mean, I thought about this again, and this is theoretical, but let's separate which basic incomes we're discussing here. If we're discussing an anti-poverty basic income guarantee, which is a much smaller sticker price. It's really the minimum amount to create a, a negative income tax, a floor uh, above which the benefit amount reduces as earned income increases. Uh, that that's, will not have such a dr dramatic impact on rents. It's really people uh, in the bottom 10 to 20% who would have a little bit more money for rent who could afford to perhaps move up to slightly better accommodations. It's not going to affect people in the fourth, fifth middle-class uh, income deciles. They won't have a lot of the benefit. Uh, so I, I don't see, I mean, most of these people already, we already live somewhere now. Um, but in, in that case, of course, we always need more affordable housing. Uh, however, in the case of, of land rents, paying out a land UBI specifically, this is where something is, um, it, it seems to me that people who are renting, they're all, already paying land rent. Uh, now it's just that the landlords are also going to pay land rent, and um, it, it seems that it would be a, a a a cycle that would defeat itself if the landlords increased the rent, but then also have to pay higher land rent themselves because they've now increased the value of their of their land by charging more rent. So at, at some point, that's why economists say that land rent collection does not increase, uh, does not change how demand and supply for 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 land. <laughs> You're absolutely correct, and I I don't want to mislead you in what I. My, what I said, um, if we do begin to collect much more land rent, then what you're saying, it will be absolutely true. The problem is, how do you get both, um, both policies implemented at the same time? We have, mm. we have property taxes right now that in, um, in the most distressed communities tend to be regressive because the assessed value of properties in those neighborhoods tends not to fall with the decline in their actual market value, as opposed to in well-to-do neighbor neighborhoods and communities, assessments tend to trail increases in, in property value. So there's, there's assessment issues that have to be dealt with. And, uh, and if we can get land value taxation adopted at the same time as the UBI is put into, into play, you're absolutely right. My fear is that it will take a lot more. It's already taken a long time to get even a nominal number of communities, even in Australia, where, where it's been the most successful to adopt a, a very rig, rigorous land value tax you know, structure. And so we have a lot of work to do on that side of the, of the battle, whereas it seems the universal basic income is, is becoming a much more popular uh, and even politically popular uh, policy to adopt.
So that, that's my concern that we don't we don't get we don't get enough rent collected to offset the the demand side of the equation, and so landowners could in fact pocket most of the increase in disposable income. Yeah, well, we haven't seen that in any of the pilots, although they haven't been uh, that long running in terms of landlords and renters. But uh, um, yeah, now UBI is getting more popular, but it's getting more popular from an anti-poverty perspective, not from a property market optimization or or uh, you know reducing the cost of land perspective. So that discussion is still very hidden, despite the efforts of uh, Professor Guy Standing and Carl Weiderquist, who are leaders in the movement. Um, I'm not sure people even hear them when they when Guy Standing says that. UBI should be compensation for loss of the commons um, because policymakers are just thinking about what's the cheapest way to reduce poverty and that's their job. So I, I, I have this feeling that the land rents that could pay land dividends uh, is a conversation of its own that may have its own justifications in terms of uh, lowering the cost of housing, um, owning land together, which has other uh, interesting uh, conversations around uh, improving our relationship to land, our relationship to our indigenous brothers and sisters, uh, being able to share in land value increasing. Um, yeah, I'm still sorting that all out right now, trying to figure that out. But um, the conversations seem, seem similar, but I don't, they haven't quite gone hand in hand, despite a lot of smart people's like good efforts. These good efforts have been taking place ever since Thomas Paine wrote Agrarian Justice in <laughs> 1795. And you know, and a, a long list of very thoughtful people followed Payne along that path and, and up to including Henry George and many thereafter. Uh, you know, uh, the economist that, that has written so much on this, uh, whole, all these issues that, we're, that I'm most familiar with was Mason Gaffney. I don't know if his yeah. name is all familiar to you. I uh, just read a, a bit of his stuff, but not, I haven't started yet fully deep on his work. But there have been many economists who have, you know, picking up this, this, these arguments and written about them extensively. And it's just been so difficult to get the, um, the measures that even the common sense that comes out of these debates into the political arena. And in the United States, certainly one of the challenges is, and, and this is true in, in most countries, is that the collection of land rent is a local issue. And so you have, and I don't know what the, um, the, the type of uh, municipal, municipal organization is in Canada, but in any community here in the United States, you probably have three or four different taxing bodies collecting property tax revenue. There's the municipality itself, a township, a borough, and then the major one in the United States continues to be the school district. So it, hmm. it, for advocates of land value taxation here, it's convincing the, the um, uh, convincing those different uh, jurisdictions to change the system that they have in place and have had in place you know, now for 100 or more years. And we also have the challenge here of state constitutional problems. Um, do, do the provinces, to your knowledge in Canada, do the, the, does the constitution of each province permit moving to land value taxation or is there a, that obstacle to overcome as well? Um, my understanding, and this is based on only a few conversations, that the provinces uh, can do that, but Canada also has an equalization system 
to equalize between provinces a standard of living. Uh, so it's something I need to investigate further, but I, I'm understanding that it's possible that the provinces could collect land rents that, that would then impact the whole country. Right now, do they, are they using income tax revenue in order for that, that equalization process? Uh, income tax, some resource rents uh, where, where there are that, and the, it's the cities, I think there's only three levels of taxation here. It's the cities that c- collect property tax for, for local use. Yeah. As Frank DeYoung may have told you in your conversations with him, there, ha- there were a few Canadian uh, municipalities that had a single tax really? uh, back in history. Yeah, one was Milk River in Alberta. I think it was Alberta. Um, and there were a few others. But there's a good deal of, of history that goes back to Henry George's time uh, <clears throat> of advocacy for, for a single tax altogether, meaning the elimination of all taxes except that on on land values or on the rent of land. Well, I, I was just to slightly change this, change subject slightly. I was listening to Fred Harrison yeah. uh, talk about how the the narrative needs to change, and there's been failure in discussing it from an efficiency perspective. And um, and I get back to the like he's, and he says we need another narrative. And, and I hear this from a lot of economists, even in the base income movement, saying we need another narrative. And on the land side, um, there's something poetic and beautiful when Henry George says we should hold land as common property. Um, or another way of saying it is that if we, if we own land together, then we'd all collect the rent and receive rental income from it together. And there'd be no advantage for anyone to, to hold more land than they need or to take more than, than, than is necessary, because we all benefit from it anyway. And, uh, and if we did that, then we would reduce a lot of the perverse incentives that exist in the market today that are holding back uh, productive developments that are keeping land from being forested or from being farmed. And it would be a net benefit for everyone. Um, I've been th- wondering if these types, of, uh, these types of more heart-driven narratives, th- th- there might be a, a moment in time now where this starts to, to make sense by connecting um, common ownership of land through collecting of land rents to stabilizing the housing market to indigenous reparations to all these things that that we're increasing our awareness of these days. Well, Fred uh, Harrison is in the process of completing, I guess, the second volume of his trilogy titled Hashtag We Are Rent. And we've talked to Fred on Smart Talk not too long ago. And he was recently interviewed uh, in Australia for Progress, uh, Prosper Australia. And, you know, his message is powerful and he's sending out a warning to us. If we don't act soon, it may be too late. And it's a scary, you know, uh, prognosis of the future if we don't begin to treat the planet as our commons and treat the planet with the kind of respect that it needs to be uh, needs to have from us, but here again, you know, when you're when you're asking people to think very differently about their relationship to the to the earth and to land, than they have considered that relationship for hundreds of years. Um, I, you know, I'm hope I'm hopeful, but but it's hard to be optimistic. I'm hopeful when I meet someone like you who in recent years has come to this, you know, these perspectives and realized how important they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, as, as I said, someone has been, been uh, in the classroom teaching Henry George's ideas for, for 40 years 
And my own background was in finance. Uh, I spent 20 years, the last 20 years of my career as a, a business manager and a market analyst at Fannie Mae. And wow. I did my best to convince the housing uh, experts in this country, in the United States, of the value of the ideas that were coming out of Henry George's work. And what I, what I found was that while they had a sense that, that this was right, they were so committed to the ideas that they had learned in their training, in their, in their own education, and mm. in, in the planning community, et cetera. It was very difficult to um, dislodge those priorities. And so the planning community is very much devoted to planning. And we can't discard planning, but the idea of, uh, of land value taxation seems to be always just marginalized outside of the scheme of the planning community and the influence of the planning community on the political community to me to me is still you know uh, pretty strong um we try to reach them you know through the courses that, that we teach at the school um you know, other online programs the work that you're doing is tremendous and and i guess one of the things that that i want to say is how can I help? Well, I, uh, as I mentioned, I, I spent two years promoting basic income without talking at all about where the money should come from. And even now in Canada, uh, we're working on a proposal for basic income that would not involve uh, the collection of land rents, but would indirectly involve collection of more of the capital gain on, on investment properties and other forms of passive wealth accumulation. Basically, you want to show that you can pay for an anti-poverty basic income guarantee without costing the middle class all the way up to people who make $150,000 and without creating investment disincentives. But still, in that conversation, land isn't really present. So I'm planning to create uh, another brand, another conversation. I call it Commonwealth, where we can have conversations around rents and land and the benefit of, the, of, of those sources of of, of co-ownership and rent collection and, and, and then uh, pre-distribution uh, to a population, whether it's the UBI or, or lowered income taxes. So yeah, how you can help if, if you could be a mentor and I can ask you questions or anyone who's listening to this wants to suggest that, because I think I've seen mistakes on both sides. Again, on the basic income side, the people who've been doing this for 40 years, they, they kind of weave in land somehow, but it's always a weak argument because it's always being led through poverty and basic income. But then on the Georgia side, it's always about efficiency and, and, and pl better planning. But from neither side, what I'm not hearing is what is the inherent benefit of simply us seeing ourselves as holding land and, and uh, as common wealth for the purpose of rent collection. So we all benefit uh, and, and how that will leave middle class people better off in, in, in its own rights. And the urgency that drives me in this direction, because it was kind of painful, because, you know, I, I feel like this conversation could be distracting from the basic income movement, which is why I feel the need that it to have a different brand to happen separately. Uh, my urgency is a bit different from Fred Harrison's. Yes, I think we are facing ecological disaster. Uh, but from a, a technology perspective, uh, I see wages are, are not growing. People are increasing job displacement will be happening very soon. It's already been happening. And if all that's happening at the same time, so technology is, I call it the big squeeze with technologies holding wages flat from growth because we're, we're creating excess labor while creating so much job disruption. Meanwhile, from the bottom is land rents increasing. And that's like a, an, an, a, a clamp that's squeezing people's well-being. 
and, and squeezing people's discretionary incomes to the point of, of no return. And, and that's what I think is causing a lot of the populist movements we have. So it's, it's land and technology, but at the end of the day, it comes back to what are these common, what is this common wealth that technology is increasing its value on that, that we could be sharing? And, and all roads seem to point to land and economic rents. And uh, so I think the, the urgency is more people's uh, jobs being displaced, whether they know it or not, because it's not just people who are being fired, rather people who are not being hired as companies become far more efficient, much faster than the job market can replace. And it's not replacing jobs with middle-class jobs, it's replaced them with increasingly lower paid jobs. So, so what happens when land prices keep going up while wages for 60% of the population are, are going down or stagnant? And, and people just have to keep moving further and further away from where they want to live. It's an unbearable situation. So, so I think uh, rents has to be part of the solution somehow and creating public awareness of even this concept of that rents exist and, and we should co-own them somehow is, is, uh, is, is the challenge, I think. Uh, because I guess my, my own, if I were to tell myself two years ago what I, what I knew now or other basic income advocates is um, how will you know, how will anti-poverty income support programs outrun rising land prices? Um, you know, at some point they can't. We may have a victory now, but in 20 years, uh, will those payments amount to enough uh, the same way our existing social support programs, the payments did not amount to enough uh, after 20 years of not growing fast enough, uh, even with inflated and made up inflation numbers, even if it is indexed to inflation. So that's a big concern I have is that a, a holistic solution needs to involve land because if land's Land is the problem. Land has to be part of the solution, too. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I mean, we're, there are those who, who are looking forward to the uh, transfer of wealth from one generation to the next as, a, uh, as an offset to the outcomes that you've just described. I mean, the, the upper middle class and even the middle class in the United States still have a tremendous reservoir of assets to transfer to the next generation. Um, what that will do in terms of, of forestalling the inevitable, I really don't know, but ho hopefully some, some uh, economists are looking at that issue very closely to see you know, what effect it will have. You also talked a little bit about capital gains and um, you know, while we're, while we're working for reforms, one of the, one of the reforms that, that some of us think is absolutely necessary is the elimination of the distinction between uh, income that's derived from the sale of any asset versus income from wages. That, that, that is actually really counterproductive from uh, an equity, equity standpoint to give ca so-called capital gains beneficial treatment under the tax code. Uh, as a as an entrepreneur and a business owner, you know what? How would you react to elimination of that the distinction? I think in Canada it's already the case. Uh, there is there is taxes off income. Then there is a reduced tax regime. There's a an inclusion rate for taxes on the sale of capital. Um, so the, the tax, capital is taxed at fifty uh, percent less. Uh, fifty percent of it is included as regular income tax. So effectively, if I sell uh, my company or I sell a stock portfolio or a second or third property, uh, then that's only taxed in the net around 25% at the top marginal rate um, versus income, which can be as high as 50, 55 in, in some cases. 
so so in canada maybe it's a bit further along but in canada land is is not is still classified as capital um and uh it would be great progress if that was declassified uh from capital so you know um again with with this funding met um funding uh plan we're putting together for an anti-poverty basic income we're, we're doing it within the, the current imagination of the taxation systems we're not talking about land but one of the ideas is to um is to is to separate remove this exclusion of capital gains tax and effectively tax capital gains at the same rate as income for all assets except corporate shares because uh, corporate shares if we don't want to if we want to argue we don't want to mess with investment incentives private capital investment real entrepreneurship uh, then um, corporate shares uh, would be excluded, and that so that means the majority of that tax would actually fall uh, on on second and third uh, non-principal residence uh, homes uh, in terms of increasing that to a maximum of a from twenty-five to fifty percent on sale. So, so again, not trying to, trying to change the understanding of what capital versus land, but just use the existing language uh, and say, well, let's let's we should you know let's remove this capital gains exemption, which mostly helps the wealthy except for corporate shares so we don't we don't mess around with the entrepreneurs um again just trying to be incrementalist because that the purpose of that right. proposal is to show that we can pay for a basic income without harming working class or middle class people um there's a general feeling among citizens of the united states that canada is far more progressive in so many ways than we are and that your political situation is, is leans more to the progressive and left side. Um, do you see that as, as in evidence by the you know, response that you get and the, the, the support you get from members of, of parliament and local government? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't spoken to American Congress people by comparison. But uh, in Canada, there is a, a growing, uh, it is certainly a more progressive co country, uh, you know, conservative governments wouldn't think of slashing, uh, you know, social support programs or, or, or getting into Republican style tactics. And there is a growing body of, uh, of members of parliament who are for basic income uh, across many different parties. It's just that their, um, their parties are not officially for it yet. Uh, but, you know, hopefully that, that will change. And I, I think it's, I think it's inevitable that that will change. Um, but yeah, in general, I think Mason Gaffney isn't he from from British Columbia? I think so. <laughs> well, uh, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. My, I'm pretty sure he was not Canadian by birth. Okay. Yeah. But um, one of our colleagues, Ted Gortney, did in fact work in British Columbia for many years as a uh, assessor and mm. helped to set up the property assessment system in the province of British Columbia. And you know he's someone who has advocated for his entire career for the movement to a, to a land value tax structure, and yeah. continue to do so. Yeah, in Canada, there's there's three large the three largest parties. There's center left, left, and then center right. It's, it's basically the the parties that tend to uh, hold sway. So an interesting interesting thing happened in this last election is that both the center and the center right parties were borrowing the the the, the left leaning parties' ideas. Uh, to try and like and pull voters away, so that there seems to be definitely a a, a progressive push, and um, hopefully that leads to a basic income faster. Uh, I'm not sure it'll lead to uh, to land reform faster because, as you know, that's the uh, the hidden cat that no one can see. Which uh, hopefully, uh, through my campaigning work and other work of 
uh, people like yourself, we can, we can make that more visible. <laughs> so, uh, I get the sense from that comment that the gen the population in Canada is generally far more progressive in their social policy attitudes than perhaps exists in the United States, that we're far more divided here ideologically over the role of government. And, and I, yeah. even within, okay. yeah. even with, within the, the community of people who embrace Henry George's basic idea of collecting land rent, um, there are some who very much believe in the absolute free market, that the role for government is minimal and that we should move as much toward a libertarian uh, view of the role of government. And then there are others who, who very strongly embrace Henry George's ideas that believe that, that government has a major role, uh, not just as an umpire to, to set a level playing field, but to take on the challenges of, of solving some of the social problems and economic problems that exist. And, uh, my own sense of what we're fighting for, ideologically or philosophically, is to find the right balance between property rights and human rights. Mm. Um, and, and it's a struggle for the heart and soul of people in this country right now, and it's been growing. I don't know, I don't know which direction it's going to go, and, and certainly we've experienced this kind of debate um, in a political arena, what is in your contact with your counterparts in the United States? Do you get a sense of which way the struggle is going, that, that business people in, in, in technology are beginning to recognize that there needs to be a different role for the public sector? And, and what kind of responses are you getting from from uh, that segment of the population, the people you interact with in the business community? Um, well, I spoke to quite a lot of uh, founders, uh, entrepreneur types, mid-sized business owners about basic income. And the support was fairly positive. Maybe uh, one in three in the US uh, would have uh, uh, a libertarian view that is not compatible uh, with, with that idea. Uh, although a lot of libertarians are also for it uh, for, the for obvious reasons too. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, one of my heroes in this movement, his name is Nick Hanauer. Uh, he, in this progressive economics movement, uh, he created a, um, a think tank uh, called Civic Action out of Seattle. And they're responsible for raising the minimum wage and, and overall promoting uh, progressive economics and economics as a force for good. He was a huge inspiration for me getting started in what I'm doing. He's a billionaire venture capitalist uh, who, who's trying to change narratives, change minds. Um, I think he's, for the most part, he's been successful. He's probably the hidden cause of the uh, Fight for 15 movement. So, so there are a lot of people like that who are seeing that trickle-down economics uh, hasn't worked. Um, and I'm seeing, you know, we're seeing more mainstream economists uh, proving that it's not working. And I think, I'm hoping that in, in, uh, in America and the UK and the world, we, we start to, to kind of swing the pendulum a little bit back to the center in terms of the, what the role of government should be and uh, in understanding the, um, the, the correct, you know, the, the place between the market and government and what are the right um, interactions. And I think, you know, Nick Hanauer has a book called The Gardens of Democracy, where he, he, he kind of unpacks and dismantles a lot of common talking points and myths. And I think he, he makes the case that uh, 
the role of government is to uh, is not to to play the game, but to to set the rules of the game, so that the rules benefit benefit people more inclusively, benefit the planet, um, and certainly, uh, uh, you know, we, we have seen that work, you know, where it's been tried, and I think, frankly, the world's going to have to have a, as we watch China continue to, uh, you know, bowl past us economically, and uh, in many ways, China is doing a better job economically in terms of uh, its 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 conception of economic rents and and uh its ability to create markets and create private sector players in those markets um uh, you know obviously they probably overshoot in many ways that we wouldn't but there are lessons to be learned there yes uh, the chinese basically have have said that the the centuries of dominance by the west was an interlude in the uh, period of of influence of chinese of Chinese thinking and that they've taken control again. Uh, and they seem to have, you know, they've, they've figured out how to achieve a high level of, of productivity and they've, they've really increased the uh, state of well-being of their people. Um, but it, their system is not perfect either. They still have, you know, problems where they have cities that they've built that were empty because of, uh, the failure to deal with the speculative aspect of the property markets. And I don't, <clears throat> I haven't seen anything lately of what they're doing about all those empty buildings that are scattered around China. But um, if they ever get it, it right, if they ever get the land question solved, um, and I know that they've been listening to people who, who bringing the idea that public collection of rent is, the, is one of the, the paths to go, that if they ever get that right, and if they ever establish a universal basic income for their people, um, then you know the West will have uh, a, a lot to worry about in terms of the dominance of the Chinese. So, have you been to China? Have you have you had any exposure to their um, you know top top thinking people? Um, I've been to China many times because uh, when I started my business. Uh, within a year, I started a Chinese version of it, um, a Chinese language version of our news website for software engineers and uh, Chinese events, uh, QCon uh, in Beijing, Shanghai, and created a team there, a uh, wonderful team. It was a wonderful thing to work with, with people who are a product of the Chinese economic miracle, people whose parents were, were farmers, and you know they now were in the city doing tech jobs uh, within, within one generation. Uh, the, the, the president of the organization in China, who I later sold, our assets to, to him, so he's running it independently. Like he came from a town that that had uh, didn't have paved uh, didn't have pavement, uh, you know, didn't have paved streets. Three thousand people. He China was evolving its education system so fast that he he got a computer science degree in a school that couldn't didn't afford to have actual computers in it until he was in his third year. So he was learning how to program on paper and being graded on paper. Like that's how fast the economy was moving to train people for the jobs of the future. Uh, so I had a chance to see this, um, to work with these wonderful people, many of which had a rural background now in this tech company. And, uh, and they grew way bigger than, than my business and uh, we're still good friends. So, so it was a good opportunity to go there and, and see some of that development happening over the last 15 years. Um, although I, I had no connections whatsoever to government or anyone at any high up, just more the, uh, the people in the software engineering community uh, who are sort of leading their own charge there and uh, cr creating their own infrastructures did you feel comfortable with China's uh, 
legal structure, its its ability to support uh, enforce contract law, that kind of thing. Was that ever an issue for you uh, in, in China? <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, I will admit every time I went to China, I was always careful about uh, what computers I brought and, and what privacy measures I took because, uh, you know, you can get your stuff scanned uh, at any point in time. So, you know, I remember a story of uh, a speaker from Amazon came to one of our conferences and had an old laptop. And uh, we asked him, why, why do you have the old laptop? Don't you get better laptops from Amazon? Because we, we flew to Beijing together to speak. He's like, when I go home, I have to throw this in a shredder. That's how Amazon treats its data security, sending engineers to China. So I was like, wow, um, <laughs> that's a real concern. Um, yeah, actually, uh, I didn't have to deal with any of that uh, because the, the fellow I worked with to start the business there effectively had a, a local private company as a proxy. And we, we had a kind of a, um, a contractual arrangement that avoided me having to have any actual footprint in China besides trademarks and training and, uh, and contractual arrangements for the movements of, of revenues and profits. So, so I avoided all of that. It, so, you know, but, you know, still we ran a successful multi-million dollar business and I'm, I'm quite uh, fulfilled thinking about that. I was able to create a, a, a business with brands and, and even employee culture that spanned, you know, many regions. You know, we had our events in Brazil, China, France, uh, Japan, we had a franchisee there, um, uh, you know, UK and, um, so China was one of them, and it was amazing to see its tech community grow from uh, a very, very small to what it is today, which is rivals uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, it's, the rate of growth has pretty, been pretty uh, astounding. And, and on the land issue, I, I'm kind of struck with the statement I heard Joseph Stiglitz make. that He said that um, uh, you know, the, the, the majority of China's economic growth for its first 30 years of development, moving out of an agricultural economy, uh, was due to privatization of, of farmer profits while maintaining uh, public ownership of land. And he said that that proves that you know you can have something like Henry George's ideas, and, and with keeping ninety-five percent of the economic benefits um, and the economic incentives in place. And, and that 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 stat and that that observation really struck with me, because you know even today there is speculation. In China land market, but China has a hundred percent land value capture uh, and property capture, which is maybe where the communism part comes in, because they because after the lease expires, they keep everything. So that's certainly not what George's Henry George was proposing, um, but th that is how China is financing extraordinary amounts of public infrastructure. And uh, I read a paper that uh, the abnormal amount of infrastructure investment is happening because of land value capture, uh, primarily. Uh, on the state level. So that's why they have high-speed trains. That's why they have corporate and income taxes that are lower than, than the US. So how can they have all this investment with lower taxes? Uh, it's because they have land value capture. Yeah, perhaps the Chinese government has learned a little bit from the experience of Hong Kong, mm -hmm. you know, where the land remained in the hands of the, of the British uh, colonial authorities for so long. And you now there's a lot of discussion about the extent to which the collection of land rents under the British led to Hong Kong's uh, dramatic uh, expansion. There was also a, uh, a German colony in China in the 1900s that uh, was administered uh, to collect land rent. And, and it, hmm. the, the uh, history there is that that of all of the colonies that were run by European powers, the German colony did the best 
because of the fact that it collected land rent at, to pay for the colon the colony's infrastructure. Hmm. So there's there's there are many lessons to be learned, and uh, and I you know I'd hope that the Chinese eventually do get it right, and that they also begin to you know um, think more about human rights as well as as dealing with the economic growth that they've dealt with. So Floyd, I, I thank you so much for your time and for joining us on this uh, episode of Smart Talk. Uh, if there's a last message you'd like to leave for our viewers, I'd, I'd give you that opportunity. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this viewers are very familiar with land. So if you're, especially if you're in Canada, if you want to help out with this work, uh, send me an email, floyd.ubiworks. Um, but uh, yeah, something I'm still uh, also very concerned with, I mentioned is technology. And I think if there's one takeaway we get from all the talk around technology displacing jobs is that it's lowering wages. It's lowering wages because it's changing faster than we can, we can handle. And with rising, rising land prices, that just makes it a double whammy. And um, so, yeah, I think uh, Andrew Yang's campaign uh, for president created um, I love this narrative that we are shareholders in the economy, uh, shareholders of, of what? And that's where I think the, the economic rents arguments comes in. So I'm interested in uh, narratives that, that, that explain in simple words why economic rents uh, should be seen as collective ownership or co-ownership. Uh, I don't have a good one yet. So if you, if you know one, maybe you can tell me, <laughs> Ed, and uh, others can, can help. But um, yeah, thank you all for the work you're doing as well. And, uh, well, we'll we'll definitely uh, follow up with you again in the future for a for a sort of a progress report, and uh, I will certainly keep paying attention to what you're doing, and I'll try to provide you any any uh, you know, papers that seem to add to the evidence that you're looking for. Thank you. But with that, uh, let me just say that that I thank you so much for for being with us and for joining us with this episode of Smart Talk. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.